Okay, so we are going to jump back into what, kids? What book of the Bible? First Corinthians. Nailed it. Before we jump into First Corinthians, let's talk to our kids. Let's talk to our young ones uh, and just uh, give you all a heads up of what is to come in this passage. It's kind of a long passage, uh, but I'm going to give you the gist of it right here, okay? So I want to tell you all a story that I heard. Uh, this is a true story, okay? I mean that. Uh, once upon a time, true story, once upon a time, uh, not so very long ago, there was a boy named Billy. Uh, and Billy grew up on the beach. And Billy's parents let Billy do anything he wanted to do. Uh, there was no curfew. Uh, he could stay out as late as he want. He could go to bed whenever he wanted to go to bed. Uh, he didn't have to eat his dinner if he didn't feel like eating his dinner. If he felt like eating his dinner, he could either eat his dinner or he could eat whatever he wanted for dinner. Uh, if he didn't want to do homework, he didn't have to do homework. If he didn't want to go to school, his parents didn't care. And he didn't have to go to school. There were no rules for Billy. But Billy also liked to go and hang out at his friend's house. And over at his friend's house, uh, his parents were really loving people, but they had rules. So Billy always had to, uh, not Billy, but his friend uh, always had to do his homework after school before he could play. He always had to go to school and then do his homework and then he could play. He always had to eat his dinner. Uh, and, and whenever Billy and his friend got in trouble, or whenever Billy made trouble over at his friend's house, the parents would come and look at Billy very lovingly and say, okay, Billy, it's time to go home now. And he knew what that meant. He knew his friend was going to get in big trouble because of the trouble they just caused. But Billy would just leave, and he would just skip on home, knowing his friend's going to get it, but he, he gets off scot-free, no trouble whatsoever, because he's going to go home to his parents who don't care what Billy does. And then, every night, Billy would go to bed, and while he laid in bed, he would wonder, what would it be like to have parents? He would wonder, what would it be like to have a family that, you know, that, that told me, you know, what I should say and what I shouldn't say? Like, what would it be like to have a mom and a dad who cared about, like, what I did? And every night, he would dream about having a real family. So, kids, do you guys like uh, your parents and all their rules? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Henry. Yes. Uh, that, is, that is where we want to get to. Is like, your parents, you, kids, y'all are so, so blessed because your parents love you so, so much, which is why sometimes you get in trouble, which is why they tell you, hey, do this, not this, say this, don't say that. You know, love, love your brother, love your sister. You need to love your mom and dad. And uh, that is what the church is like. So y'all, this, like, this is it right here. The church is like a family. And we come together here and here, we're all brothers and sisters. I'm your brother. And who's our father? God. And who is our older brother? Jesus, the son of God. He's like our older brother who's in charge of the family. And Jesus tells us what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. And he tells us, listen, and you're going to mess up. You're going to screw up. And I love you no matter what. And I have saved you from all the screw-ups you're going to make because of my grace. Now, listen, this is why we come together on church. 
Every Sunday is because we need to hear that. You may wake up in the morning on Sundays and your parents are like, time to go to church. And you begin, no, I don't want to go to church again. Your parents can say, yeah, we're going to church. And your parents are doing that not to torment you, not to torture you. They're doing it because they love you. Because guess who else needs Jesus? You and your parents. Your parents. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a secret that you already know. Your parents are just as big a screw-ups as you are. Uh, your parents, we mess up. We need to come to church on Sunday. We need you to come to church on Sunday because each and every one of us, all us brothers and sisters, desperately, desperately, desperately need Jesus. And we need each other. We need our church family to help us get through this life together, to keep each other on the right track. Hey, this is the way we should go. Don't go that way. Come this way with us. That's what we're going to talk about today in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in this letter in 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with all these divisions in the church in Corinth, this church that he planted, you know, a couple years prior, year and a half prior or so. Uh, yeah, no, it was uh, a little while prior. But he, he's dealing with one problem after another that he's, heard, he's getting all these reports of what's going on. So he's writing this very, very uh, heavy, kind of application-heavy letter. And today we're going to be in chapters 5 and 6. Chapters 5, all the way through 5, all the way through 6, it's really one passage. But it's, it's, you know, we're trying to follow the flow of Paul's thought here. So we're actually not going to read all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. But my encouragement to you is we're going to deal with everything here so that when you go home and you want to read the first half of chapter 6, uh, you'll be blessed in your reading and you'll have a framework to understand just what Paul is up to here. So... With that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexually, uh, sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For although absent in body, I am, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
And then we are moving forward into the second half of chapter 6, where he picks up and says, Such were some of you, what he was just referring to at the end of chapter 5. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Uh, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Right at the beginning, we need to ask this question. Like, Let's be really clear about this. Who is Paul talking to here? The Corinthians, right? Okay, well, who are they? Well, remember, the city of Corinth is a very, very important trading center to the Roman Empire. It's a port city, uh, and it is the center of sensuality of the whole Roman thing. Uh, th- th- this is the old school, ancient Las Vegas. Uh, the, the, this, this thing called the Acro-Corinth uh, was this temple uh, on this hill overlooking the city, uh, and on it is this temple of Aphrodite, who is the, quote, goddess of love, which is more like goddess of lust. And her priests and her priestesses were the cult prostitutes day and night. You could not live in the city of Corinth without knowing about all this, without being exposed to it. And Paul is not writing an open letter to the city of Corinth. He is not addressing the Corinthians outside the church. He is addressing the Corinthians inside the church. He's writing to Christians. And he's addressing problems not in the city. He's addressing problems in the church. The specific problem that Paul addresses right there at the beginning is, is incest. A man has his father's wife. And we know from the wording of it is the case here is with his stepmother. Okay, and this kind of illicit union, as, as the commentators put it, 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 one, it's expressly forbidden in the Old Testament, expressly forbidden in the New Testament, and it is expressly forbidden in Roman law. So here you are in the city of Corinth where anything goes, and this is the one thing that even the Greek pagans would never dream of doing. As in, you don't have to be a Christian to get that this is really, really wrong. So Paul lays out the obvious problem there in verse 1, and then immediately we get the problem behind the problem in verse 2. You've got this problem that the pagan Corinthians would not put up with, and you, you know, you Corinthians, 
you are arrogant. As in like this big, bad, terrible stuff is going on. And it's not that the church is, it's not that they're not denying it. Uh, it's not that they're uh, turning a blind eye to it. It's not that they're tolerating it. They're boasting about it. Everyone knows. This is all around town and beyond. Paul, who is in Ephesus, far, far away, Paul has heard reports of this. Here's the church, big problem, and they're boasting about it around town. And the question is, how did it come to this? Well, this is where we this is where we're kind of getting out of the flow of Paul's thought. Hopefully it provides a perspective that, that enhances Paul's flow of thought. But if you get to uh, chapter 6 and verse 12 and verse 13, Paul quotes two popular, popular dominant views of the culture regarding sex. And these two popular views in the city of Corinth, they've made their way into the church. And so here in, six, in, in verse 12 of chapter 6, Paul's quoting this back to them of like, this is what he's heard from them. Oh, hey, all things are lawful for me. So he quotes that back to him. All things are lawful for me. Okay, and then 6.13, the next verse, he quotes that this is another slogan. There's another saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So that first quote, you know, hey, we're free to live however, you know, we're free to live now however we want to live. We're free to love however we want to love. That spirit has made its way into the church. That second quote, verse 13, food meant for the stomach, stomach for food. That's, that's just this view that the stomach is made for food, so when you're hungry, you eat. And the physical stuff, sex, it's just like that. It's just like appetite, so when you're in the mood, you've got that. There's no deeper significance to it. Don't make sex a bigger deal than appetite and consumption. Just enjoy it when you're craving it. There is a super fascinating quote I heard from a buddy. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, Peter Berkowitz. He, he's a political scientist. This is an old. This is, this is an old quote. This is from 2000. It's forever ago, uh, but still so illuminating uh, for our current culture. What he's doing is back in the day. He's commenting on uh, specifically. He's commenting on the different ways college students have talked about the act of sex over years and the, the uh, evolution of their language. This is what he says. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, at the dawn of the sexual revolution, radical college students referred to one of their newfound freedoms as the now quaint saying, uh, sorry, now quaint sounding making love, which was a euphemism that emancipated sex from marriage, but preserved its link to romance. And in the 80s, we referred to this act as having sex, which severed the biological drive from the emotional attachment so you still, you know, you got the biological crave, the drive is there, uh, it, but not the romantic emotional attachment stuff anymore, okay? It's just something you have. And today, students adopt a mechanical metaphor, speaking of hooking up, like railroad cars and computer docking stations, which I don't remember what computer docking stations were, but they had those back in 2000, you hook something up. Okay, so that, that kind of language, that evolution of the devaluing of sex has made its way into the church. So, and I mean like today, that kind of stuff has made its way into the church. So before we jump all over the Christians and shock and awe, like, oh, how could you? It's us too. It's gotten this bad in the Corinthian church because of this false view of Christian freedom, and that persists today in the church. 
This idea of like because of Jesus and forgiveness and grace and it's all by grace and you can't lose it because it's all by grace. If you just believe, that means I, I, re- I can do whatever I want with whoever I want. And there have been many, many, many a minister that has gone down preaching that. And, uh, and many, many uh, Christian has gone down believing that. Paul quotes these views to expose, to expose them for the confusion and the, the utter lies that they are. The Bible says sex is not a base appetite to do whatever you want when you want. The Bible says, very plainly, sex is good. Now, this is how this is where we get it here. In chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Or do you not know the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. When you put it negatively like that, it doesn't sound so profound at first glance, but it is. It is so profound. In the sense of, he's not just talking about physical union, because then Paul would be saying, hey, don't you know that when you physically unite, you're physically uniting? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, that sex unites two people, body and soul. The whole person to the other whole person. And there is no more profound, deep, beautiful, awesome understanding of the glory and the power of sex in the world. Nowhere else. And this is why this is so devastating when it is misused and when it is abused. This is why it hurts so much when two people who have been physically united then separate, either through divorce or or breakup. It's like gluing two pieces of paper together and then trying to pull them apart. The two, uh, the two people are going to be torn apart. This is, this is why there's so much hurt when someone takes advantage or someone abuses or someone assaults another person physically because it has just not phys- awful physical consequences. It is awful spiritual consequences. Because the physical affects the spiritual, the physical affects the emotional, the psychological, and vice versa. Because we're one person. So, so the warning to flee sexual immorality, this is out of love. This is out of love from Paul. And, and, and that we don't, I don't know, we don't, in a lot of circles, we don't use that kind of language anymore, flee sexual immorality. It sounds Greek to us. The Greek is uh, this word. It's actually one word for the bad stuff here. It's called porneia, from which you, 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 I'm sure you know where we get our word from there. Porneia means any form of sexual, any, this is like, what are we talking about? What is sexual immorality? It is any form of sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, premarital, extramarital, uh, any, any, any form of, of sexual identity outside of the biblical prescription for what this is. And we're actually going to get into the weeds of this a little more next week. We're, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about singleness. Um, but here, just out of love for his Corinthian brothers and his sister, Paul warns them to flee this sin that will undo you. How did it come to this? Well, he goes on that it's not just, it's not just by their abuse of their sense of freedom. It's also this, the first dispute, remember the first dispute that Paul addressed in the letter, they're feuding over which, which leader 
they thought was going to make them the most relevant to the world. You know, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Peter. Oh, I follow Jesus. You know, all this, all this factionalism over leadership, what it has done, it has created a void in leadership in the Corinthian church. So this is, the, this is where that first part of chapter 6, it seems like you go read it, you go read chapter 5 and all of 6, it seems like this huge tangent right at the beginning of chapter 6 that Paul goes off on. It's not a tangent. Because what he's talking about there, what he's pointing up there is the lack of leadership in the Corinthian church. It is so bad that not only are they out there boasting about this stuff that's going on uh, when they should be mourning about it, what they're also doing is members are suing each other suing each other in public court, taking these divisions that they have, and they're taking it out to the world uh, to let the world decide what's going on when, when they should be working out their disputes between one another in the church, working toward repentance, working toward reconciliation with one another out of grace and, and love. That's what he says. We didn't read this, but in 6, uh, verses 5 and 6, he said, Can it really be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between, between you, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? What are y'all doing? You're not acting like the church. Because he says, If you had listened to your leaders, uh, and if their leaders had led, then sin would have been called sin. And then they would have had the right reaction over what was happening. Not boasting about all this terribleness that's going on because they've got this freedom. Not boasting about it, but they would have been mourning over it. This is what he says. Ought, this was back in 5. Ought you not rather to mourn? And that word for mourn is the, it's the same word that the Bible uses to describe grieving over the loss of a loved one, the death of a loved one. It's like with this stuff going on, you're boasting. And instead, you should be grieving like one of your loved ones just died. And the question there is, well, okay, why? Because this brother of yours who claims to be a Christian and is now rejecting the faith because of what he's out there doing uh, is in danger of dying forever. And you're not holding him accountable he is living like he is lost, not saved. Of course you should be mourning. You should mourn because you're you should mourn because you're not smugly self-satisfied that there's someone in the church that's more screwed up than you are. As if you were beyond ever possibly doing something as, as horrible as what's up. You mourn out of love for a brother or sister who is hurting, you mourn for a brother or sister who is, who is perishing. And the mourning doesn't just look like sitting around and crying. It might for a season, but the good news is, like, you know, we're not helpless. Paul doesn't end there. There's something the family of God can do. Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, interesting. Paul tells them what to do with the guy, but he doesn't say anything about the stepmother because what is heavily implied is that she's not in the church because she's not a believer. And so Paul has zero authority over her. And the church has zero authority over her. 
And that is why Paul goes into this bit about not judging those outside the church. Not our business. No other philosophy, no other worldview, no other religion comprehends the value and the glory of sex. No other philosophy, no other worldview, no other religion could could comprehend the value and the glory of sex because that understanding is specially revealed in the Bible. And the world does not believe the Bible. So how could they understand? But the Corinthian Christians do understand because Paul has taught them all this stuff himself. And he's written, this is actually his second letter. We just don't have the first letter. We can talk about that another time. Uh, He says, I've already written to you previously on this. And this is why Paul says, listen, I'm not concerned with judging the world. God God is going to do that. What I've been given to do is to hold you guys accountable. Like, oh, how could the world do this stuff? We know why. We know how they could do this stuff. Like, why is that a shock to you? No, my concern is that you are compromising with the world. And I will hold you to account because I love you. And this is his accounting with the, the Corinthian man who is a member. The way, it's, the way uh, what's going on here is communicated is this is not a past issue uh, between the man and his stepmother. It's an ongoing issue. Is in he refuses to repent. So the unrepentant man is to be excommunicated. And Paul is telling them to do what Jesus told the apostles, the church, to do. You can go to Matthew 18 and, and see that Jesus gives us a framework uh, of a plan for church discipline. is basically this, that it looks like, you know, whoever is, you know, what does this look like? In practice, this is very, very basic. Obviously, we can fill this out, but just basically it looks like whoever is close to that person who is steeped in this unrepentant sin— that loved one goes to that loved one to say, what's up? What are you doing? Like, this is bad. Like, do you see this? To lovingly and graciously, patiently encourage that person to repentance. If that doesn't work, then that person gets one other person who also is, is familiar with this person, and they go together to converse, to talk, to, to love one another, to love this brother, to love this sister. And if that doesn't work, then the leadership is brought in. Again, to lovingly, graciously, patiently, perseveringly call this brother or sister to repentance. Uh, and it is never, it is never a ganging up on the person in question. And in the most severe cases, where there is no repentance, at the very end of it all, there is excommunication. That's severing the membership from the church. And what that is, basically, is you are treating them like they're not Christians. Paul says this goes for all kinds of unrepentant sinners, not just this stuff. He says, don't associate with those who claim to be Christians and are unrepentantly greedy, swindlers, cheaters, idolaters, physically violent, drunks. And we want to ask, man, well, does this sound like intolerance? This is America. This is 21st century. And what we've really got to point up now is we can be really schizophrenic about whether or not we like uh, top-down authority. Um, but, it, yeah, usually, usually we don't. Usually we don't like it when it encroaches on our, on our freedom. Uh, and the Corinthians can't agree. They can't agree who is the authority they should be following. 
And today still, still today in the church, when we come to passages about authority like this, about church authority, uh, we don't like it. As in, listen, God is my authority. Jesus is my authority. The Bible is my authority. My kids tell me that stuff. Um, okay, that's actually not. That's not. Uh, yes, and. Uh, because it's God who has instituted these authorities himself. Parental authority is a good thing because it's God who instituted that authority. State authority is a good thing because it's God who instituted the state. Church authority is a good thing. That's God's idea. And we still don't, we still don't like them. The church has been deceived over many, 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 many years by culture, and, and it has compromised with the thinking you know, that to do anything that would influence or transform another person's perceived failures, it, that, that doesn't just cross the line. That's reprehensible. And the irony of our culture today is, is so funny with all the canceling and all the, the shunning, uh, with all the abundance of quote-unquote influencers we have who don't actually work or add anything to the peace of society, I would say, uh, is laughable. Or, Paul would say, is worthy of mourning. The irony is, we do not live in a tolerant society. We don't. Our culture says tolerance is not enough that you have to affirm the status quo of the culture, whatever the, whatever the status quo is today. It'll be different tomorrow. And the church is more, in, okay, that's what the world is doing. The problem is the church is more and more and more and more buying into that. And what we got to do is we got to remember the story that we are in. Remember the story that we are in. Like, as in, what if you save someone from committing suicide? Like, stopped someone from physically hurting themselves. Is that intolerance? How could you? Uh, I think I've brought this up before, but, you know, we've got, we've got people in here who cut each other, cut other people with knives. We've got people in here in this congregation, y'all, who stick lasers in people's eyes. We call them Doctors. Uh, and, and, and they inject people with drugs. We pay them to do it. Are they unloving? Like, no. You think, of, you think of the family, because Paul is talking here about the church as a family. Like, you think of your kid, like, darting out into the street. And you grab them. You yell at them. If you're, uh, you know, is that un unloving? It's loving your kids. The kid who wants to run out into the street, you're going to say no if you love them. It's the unloving parents who don't care, that don't say anything. Uh, I, I know I've told you this before. This is uh, uh, the story of a Scotsman told uh, by another Scotsman. I love, uh, thank Alistair Begg for this, but he tells a story about A.J. Cronin. I think I, I know I've told you all this, but this is so, uh, it's applicable. Scott, he's a Scottish doctor. A.J. Cronin is a Scottish doctor. He became a novelist later in life. Uh, anyways, he's telling this story uh, about a stray boy. And this is a true story, but he's telling a story about a stray boy who's taken in by a family, a, a friend of his. And the mom and dad, they have a son. They find this stray boy out in the country, and they take him in. Uh, and the son and the stray, they become uh, best friends. 
Like they're inseparable. And then one day, the stray boy gets really, really sick. He con- contra- ends up, he contracts a deadly disease. And the stray boy and the son, they have to be separated. They, this makes sense to us now, right? We, know, we, get the, we get what's going on here. Okay, the stray boy and the son, they have to be isolated from one another, which is unbearable for the two of them. Uh, because they, they all, they're best friends. They're attached to the hip. They want to be together. And they're, they're so young, they don't get it. And the stray boy, he's on the verge of death, and he makes a turn for the better. He's, not, he, he's out of the woods, but he's still really, really sick. So one day the dad, uh, morning, he's going up to check on his, you know, the stray boy. He's going up to check on him, uh, and he finds his son asleep next to him. It's the son in the middle of the night. Couldn't bear it anymore. And snuck into the room. So within two weeks, the son got the disease. And the son was not as strong as the stray. And he died. And A.J. Cronin, the guy who's telling the story, this, is the, the, this happened to his friend. He hears what's happened uh, to his friend, and he curses that stray boy. And, he, and, he, and just cannot get over the foolishness of his friends who, who took in this stray boy. So seven months later, A.J. Cronin is finally able to go see his friend. He goes, and he sees his friend, and, and he thinks he's going to find him just totally broken, utterly depressed. And he arrives... And he sees his friend working in the garden with the stray boy. And he just cannot get it. He, he, but he goes to his friend. He hugs him. He comforts him. He pulls him aside and says, what about this? What are, what are you going to do about Paul? What, he had this really, really long Greek name that was impossible to pronounce. And he's like, what are you going to do about Paul? And whatever his last name is. And his friend looks at him and says, you'll be able to pronounce his name now. Because his name uh, is my last name. Because I adopted him as my son. It was a must. It was imperative that there be this distance between the two boys when one was sick and contagious. It was, it's a must and it is imperative that there be this distance between members of the church, a member of the church who is sick and steeped in sin and refusing to repent. And the one who says they're a Christian but is steeped in terrible sin refuses to repent, they're going to infect others if something at the end is not done. But, but, what is the point of that excommunication? The point is to bring them to repentance. It's the last effort we have, the last effort we can make, and the day that grace breaks through, through the loving discipline of the church, and the unrepentant sinner repents and turns back to Jesus, away from whatever it is that they're steeped in, on that very day, that brother, that sister is welcomed back into the garden fellowship of our family the communion of our church. I know that this sounds harsh. It sounds harsh. What it does is it sounds serious because it is serious. That, that thing of deliver this person over to Satan, like, oh my goodness, like, what does that mean? Like, it means to take someone from the protection of the church and send them out to the world, which is to hand them over to Satan, who is currently in control of the world. But love corrects. 
as in you cannot sweep stuff under the rug. Paul says you have got to deal with the errant member who refuses to repent. If we love them, if we do not want them to live under the illusion that all is well, hey, everything's okay. You've got to do this. To do that, to just, to, to just let them go on as if nothing was wrong is to set them up for colossal, eternal failure. And the, per- the, the, the purpose of church discipline, it's not punitive. It is not punitive. It is not punishment. It's corrective. It's redemptive. It is to bring people back to Jesus in the church because here's the problem. Another minister put it this way. You may tolerate a sinner all the way to hell. And that is not love. And that is not grace. Or you may discipline someone all the way to glory. So in that first part of chapter 6 that we did not read, uh, Paul is correcting them for going out to the world. He's, they're going out to the public courts to settle their lawsuits instead of figuring it out themselves or trusting church leadership to shepherd them, govern them, help them. And then he goes off on the church leadership. Uh, it's not doing their work, not doing their ministry, not doing their job. And then in the middle of all it, there's this really, really interesting verse. I wanted to make sure we cover all those hard verses in these chapters and you don't go off and be like, ah, he didn't do this. Okay, chapter 6, verse 3, it says this. Do you not know, so he's, he's railing on the leadership and the people. He's like, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? <clears throat> that is not a throwaway line. Like we... We, you, in the church, you here one day in heaven on judgment day, you are going to judge angels. The bad angels. What does this make you think of when you hear that? Well, he's just talked about handing the unrepentant sinner over to Satan. He's got the devil. All these devils on his mind. If you go back to the beginning of where this mess, of what the world is, where this mess all started is Adam in the garden. And Adam's chief job was to keep, which means to guard the garden. From what? You find out in Genesis chapter 3, when the devil shows up in the form of a serpent. And right there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you've got the devil blaspheming the goodness of God. And what is Adam supposed to do? Adam should have judged. He should have judged the devil right there as you're bad and God is good. And he failed. And he fell. And we fell in that fall. But then the Son of God came to earth to do what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus, who is called the second Adam, he comes and he judges the devil. It is not true that Jesus is not judgmental. That's not true. It is not true that Jesus is tolerant. That is not true. Jesus is full of grace. And we've got to hold on to the real story that grace has everything to do with judgment. Jesus lives a righteous life of perfect obedience And yet his life is cut short and he is tried and he is condemned and he bears the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. He bears that judgment for sin on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus is not treated like family. He's treated like the unbeliever. And he's not excommunicated. He is truly 
cast off. He is truly, uh, this is eternal distance from God on the cross. But it is not for his sin. He is being judged, and it's for us. Jesus died for you, and he suffered the punishment due your sins on the cross. And he suffers in your place for your failure to love God and for your failure to love other people in this church and for your failure to love other people out in the world. It's his life for your life. It is his death for your death. And you receive his salvation, all of it, only by grace through the gift of faith. And right there, do, do you see grace and judgment? He has opened the way to heaven where we will judge Satan and all his devils. And because that is all true, we are called right now to lovingly and graciously and patiently and unfailingly hold on to together and hold on to each other, as it were, hold out this grace, this gospel of grace that says that we are not saved from judgment, we are saved through judgment all through Jesus. We will continue to hold that out to each other in love and in grace uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and our Lord and Savior who is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It can be such a hard word, Lord. It can be such a difficult word. It can be such a, a, a judgmental word. Uh, but your judgment, your ultimate judgment of us in Christ is one of grace. We thank you for the gospel of grace. Bless us, Lord, when it is hard, when it is difficult, when it is just not on our mind, uh, make us aware to hold out this grace to one another that we would, like brothers and sisters, love one another for the sake of our elder brother, because our elder brother loves us, because of what he has done for us, because of what he's doing in us, because of what he will do. Uh, when it is hard, help. Uh, when it is easy and forgettable, remind us. We pray through your leadership here, through your people here. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.